Okay, well, our lecture this evening is the fourth principle of interpretation, which is identifying descriptive and prescriptive texts, which is a fancy way of saying finding the difference between illustrations and commands. Or today, essentially, we're going to talk about kings and poets. Those are the two men that we're going to talk about today, a king and a poet. And when we go through the Bible, we need to see the difference between a king and a poet. And much false teaching in our world today and from the church today is that people cannot distinguish between a king and a poet. Now, before we get to that, let's just review a little bit. Thank you to Caleb Myers for writing this out. In our soldier mnemonic device of preparing the sermon, I'm just going to use Cornet as my example. Here's Cornet. He wants to preach. Where do I start? We said the first thing that Cornet needs to do is what? Lloyd? Select the passage. And we talked about ways of how to select the passage. After that, we talked about the second point, which is, Caleb? Observing. Observing the buffalo. Looking at the passage. Look, look, look. And we talked about ways to do that. And then we talked about L, linking the passage. And remember we talked about how cross-references serve two purposes. One is the data-gathering stage, where you're just getting as much information from the passage as you can, taking that lemon, taking that orange, and squeezing as much as you can. My children have a hand orange squeezer that they squeeze out fresh-squeezed orange juice, and then we go to the KitchenAid, and we use the machine, and we stick it in, and we get even more juice out of that, and then my sons use their teeth and they suck even more juice out of those oranges. Well, that's a silly illustration compared to all of the richness that is in the Bible, and we want to squeeze as much of that out as we can. Letter D is dividing the passage, breaking it down into smaller pieces so that we don't put a piece of steak in front of the children, we cut it up into smaller pieces so that they can understand it. And then the eye of soldier is interpreting the passage. And then we, we broke this down even more. We said, well, let's, let's put this dividing the passage into practice and let's do it right here. So we broke interpretation into one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And we talked about nine, or we are talking about nine principles of, here's a fancy word, hermeneutics. Which just means interpreting the Bible. How can we interpret the Bible? How can we understand what it means? And so we're giving you some principles. Here are some laws. Here are some rules. Here are some guide posts. Here are some signboards along the road that are going to help us to understand the Scripture. And we gave it in another mnemonic device called Scripture. S stood for what? Susheka, can you remember? S, and there's even a couple things it could stand for. Nathan? Sanctification. Sanctification is a big, nice, long word, but that is incorrect. Reggie? Uh, salvation. Spirit. Spirit, right. So we need the Spirit, and we can't have the Spirit without salvation. And we have another fancy term for this, which is called what? Illumination. Illumination. Yes, thank you, buddy Nico. Illumination, that's correct. Um, so if someone comes to us and says, I can't understand the Bible. I open it up, and it's just like 
Chinese to me. I can't understand what it's talking about. Pastor Seth and I have been teaching that the first thing they need is not principles of interpretation, going to the context. That's, that's important. You need to be converted. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. You need new eyes to see. We don't put spectacles on a blind man, right? And we don't expect an unregenerate person to understand the scriptures without the Spirit. The second principle would be context and then cross-references. And today, we're going to move to I, which is identifying kings... And poets. Here's the big idea of our talk this evening. Descriptive texts are poets. Prescriptive texts are kings. Know the difference. That's the big idea. In the Bible, you're going to find kings and poets. And you need to know the difference between those two. So let's break it down and talk about some of the differences between descriptive texts and prescriptive texts. Descriptive texts describe, they report, they recount, they relate the details of a story. They, they illustrate and explain. Descriptive texts are poets. Poets are writing poems to describe the mist of the ocean or the rays of the sun. Descriptive texts are poets urging us to learn from the colorful features of the narrative. They do not necessarily command anything. And that is what prescriptive texts do. And oftentimes we find the majority of the descriptive texts, not all of them, but many of them in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, specifically the Gospels and the book of Acts. So let's give some uh, Examples. We go to Luke, begins his gospel, and he says, I want you to understand this narrative. He says, listen to what happens. I'm going to tell you stories in the book of Acts. But then when we come to kings, these are prescriptive texts. Think of prescriptive texts as kings. They're sitting on their throne, and they're looking at you, Caleb. They're looking at you, Bodiniko, and they're saying, submit to your own husbands, wives, or... Children, obey your parents. That is a prescriptive text. The king is sitting on his throne and he says, I'm not describing anything. I'm telling you, do this. So now you have the king over here, he's commanding. And you have the poet over here and he's describing. And these passages of scripture are sometimes the king and sometimes the poet. Prescriptive texts are kings upon a throne. They command and they dictate. They hurl out injunctions and they demand obedience. And you say, well, what's the big deal? And the big deal is this. And we're going we're gonna to give one major example at the end. I've given you four pages. And the third and fourth page, we're going to focus on a descriptive text that many people take to be prescriptive. Specifically, prosperity churches will look at this and say, Here's, here is a king speaking. And we look at it and say, no, it's actually a poet. The big deal between the king and the poet is if you get them mixed up, it'll be easier to fall 
into false teaching. So, let's practice. Go to Luke in your Bibles. Luke 6, 10-13. We're going to find four actions of Jesus. Someone look at verse 10 and tell me, summarize in a word or two, the action that Jesus does in Luke 6, verse 10. Can you summarize it in a word or in a couple words? This is Luke 6, 10. Caleb? Feeds 5,000. Luke 6, 10. And God. It's okay. Luke 6, 10. Can you just summarize in one word what Jesus does there? He heals, right? Would you say that is a king or a poet? It's a poet, poet, right? Okay. Next, verse 12. Can you give me one word to summarize what Jesus is doing? Praise. Okay. Would you say that's a king or a poet? King. Is he commanding? Is he commanding, Caleb? Okay. You want to change your answer? Okay. Thank you. Pray. Uh, Third, verse 12. Can you give a little bit more? Okay, third. How long did Jesus pray? Is that a king or a poet? It's a poet. Okay, and then finally, verse 13. What, 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 we, what is he doing there? What is Jesus doing? Verse 13. Okay, choose the disciples. Is that a king or a poet? Okay, it's a poet. So we have four poets, essentially. Now, which of these four, let me just summarize it, healing... Praying, praying all night and calling disciples, which one of those are requirements for us today? Would you say all of them? Would you say some of them? Would you say none of them? Well, before you give your answer, before you give your answer, whatever your answer is, it is important to distinguish between kings and poets. Because there's going to be some people who say, Look, it says right there, that's what Jesus did. We have to do that. We have to do all four. Others are going to say, well, wait a minute. Why should we do all four? What about just a couple? So let me give you some rules to help us decide when we come to a king or we come to a poet, how do we distinguish these two? When do we have to follow the words of the poet? Or do we only have to follow the words of the king? And here's a question. Do we always have to follow the words of the king? In other words... Do we always have to follow the commands? When Jesus gives a command, do we always have to follow it? And if we come to a poet, are we obligated to follow it? Let me give you five rules that are going to help us here. Making the distinction between, we could say kings or poets, or commands and illustrations, or descriptive and prescriptive text. Here's the first one. This would be Roman figure number four, five rules number one, or letter A. Commands and illustrations are different. Now we're going to build, and that might be obvious to you, but in the beginning, let's just give the first rule, and that is, there's a difference between poets and kings. Descriptive texts, that's poets, are found throughout scripture, but mostly in stories and narratives. So let's look at another example. Let's go to Acts 2 in your Bible. Go to Acts 2. We were just in Luke 6. Let's go to Acts 2. Don't look at your notes, which I didn't want to give you. But you have them there. Don't look at your notes. Go to Acts 2. We'll go quickly. 
verse number two. Can you just summarize briefly what happens in verse two? Just a couple words. Acts 2, verse 2. These are all going to be descriptions. These are all going to be poets. Okay, a noise comes, all right? Verse 4, the believers are filled with the Spirit. Verse 4 and 6, they speak in tongues. Uh, Verse 42, skip way ahead. Verse 42, we find devotion to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and breaking of bread and prayer. Verse 43 we find what? In verse 43. What did the apostles do? Wonders and signs. Verse 44, they hold things in common. Verse 45, they sell their possessions. And then verse 46, what do they do every day? Okay, so I gave at least eight descriptions in Acts 2. Now, those are poets. Are we supposed to follow those? Some of those. Hey, what gives you the right, Nsush, to just say, uh, we have to do one, four, and six. I think those three. Because those are the ones I like, but the other ones we don't have to do. I mean, is it arbitrary? Do you just choose some and not others? How do you do that? In fact, if you look at the chapter, there are only four imperatives in Acts 2. And here they are. Verse 36. Know that Jesus is the Messiah. That's a king. That's a command. Number two. It's in verse 38. Repent of your sins. Number three, be baptized. That's verse 38. And then verse 40, this is number four, save yourself from coming judgment. Now, my point here is not to choose which poet to obey and which king to obey. All I'm saying is, can you at least see that there is a difference between poets and kings? Can you see that when we gave these eight descriptions, they held all things in common? Now, we're not deciding now if we should hold all things in common. We're not deciding now if we should speak in tongues. We're only saying, can you see the difference of a description of speaking in tongues and a command that says, repent. Over here, you have the king on his throne. And over here, you have the poet. And there's a difference between the two. Let's go to the second rule. Here it is. Illustrations or poets or descriptive texts, become commands if they are legitimately commanded elsewhere. Here's what Plummer says. Quote, A good general rule is that a behavior reported in the text may be considered prescriptive only when there is subsequent explicit teaching to support it. So that is, you might find a description a poet of Jesus praying, do we have to follow that poet, that, that illustration? And we'd say, if there is an explicit king elsewhere telling us to pray, then yes, we have to follow that illustration. Let's turn to Luke 6. We were there before. Luke 6. And we looked at four of those examples, right? We said, heal, pray, Pray all night, call the disciples, right? And we all decided, after Caleb changed his mind, that four of them, these are four poets. Now, of those four poets, how many of those are we obligated, expected to obey? 
He'll pray, pray all night, and call twelve disciples. So, and Susheko says, we don't have to do, we're not obligated to do one, three, and four, but we do have to do number two. Is that arbitrary? I don't think so. Because Jesus tells his disciples in many places throughout the scripture. For example, Luke 11.2, when you pray. Luke 11.9, ask, seek, and knock. Luke 18, he tells his disciples to be urgent in prayer. He instructs them to pray in Luke 22, verse 40. This is all just in Luke. And then if you go outside of Luke, you go to passages like Matthew 6. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, Jesus says. He tells us, pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. These are commands. And so the reason that we're required to listen to the poet that is describing prayer is because we have a king elsewhere that commands it. Number three, commands or kings become illustrations if they are renounced elsewhere. And this is often the case when we move from the Old to the New Testament. Let me give a few examples. Uh, In the Old Testament, immorality was a capital offense. That means if a woman committed adultery, you stoned her to death. Or man. Leviticus 20. But then when you come to the New Testament. You're in 1 Corinthians 5, right? And you find a man committing incest. With his mother-in-law. What does Paul say to do? He doesn't say kill him. He says practice church discipline and remove him from the church. So I would say if a man in your church commits adultery, you should not kill him. You should excommunicate him according to the New Testament passage. So that is, the king in the Old Testament has now actually become, has become a poet. We can still learn from that, that command. We don't just throw it away in Leviticus 20. We can still learn from it. But it would be an illustration. Let me give some more examples. Uh, Nazarites in the Old Testament told to cut their hair, number six, New Testament. It's a shame for men to have long hair. Or in Leviticus 11, here's a king. He's on his throne. He says, don't eat pork. But in the New Testament, there's a new king. And the new king, Jesus Christ, in Mark 7, 19 says, enjoy that bacon. Now, which one do we do? Now we go to the Old Testament and say, that would be an illustration. That's number three. But here's a question before we get to number four. What do you do when a king is speaking in the New Testament? Are you always obligated to obey it? Like, let's say the king is on his throne, but everyone in his courtroom is not there. Let's say he's only speaking to a group of people in the courtroom, but there's a whole nother part of his kingdom that he is not speaking to. This brings us to number four. Commands become illustrations if the command is not applicable universally. So for example, Jesus does command his disciples in Matthew 10. 
He says what many prosperity churches follow. He says this in Matthew 10 verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Hey, what do you do with that? We've been talking about kings and poets, but can we all agree that Matthew 10 verse 8 is a king? Can we agree with that? It's not a poet. There's no description here. It's a command here. So, there you go. It's a command. Jesus said it. Heal, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, raise the dead. Are these obligations for us today? And I would say no. And let me give four reasons. Verse number five, Jesus is commanding who? Just the disciples, just the 12. That's where context is coming in. Number two, they were told to avoid the Samaritans and the Gentiles. So if we're to obey verse 8, does that mean we have to obey verse 5 as well? Like, how can you take just verse 8 and says, hey, 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 Pastor Seth. Hey, Pastor Nyalungu. Read it and weep. You want to talk about kings and poets? Fine. Here's a king. And the king says in verse 8, heal, raise the dead. Then you say, but man, this... I'm like, I'm not surrounded all by Jews. I'm surrounded completely by Gentiles. So does that mean I have to obey that one or not? What about number three? They were to speak only to Jews. That's verse six. And then verse seven, after preaching the kingdom, they're commanded not to charge any money for their services. This is what I would do to a prosperity guy. If he came up to me in Matthew 10 verse eight and he says, look, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons, All he has to do is the very next verse. (laughs) Verses 9 and 10, which says, don't charge money for your services. Don't take extra extra travel equipment, luggage, extra money, clothing, footwear. Don't take any of that. Are you willing to do verses 9 and 10? No, no, no. Verse 10. I do verse 10. What about the very next verse, 9 and 10? No, no, we don't do that. See the inconsistency? And so we need to look at the context. That's why this is all coming into play. We don't just take one little part. We bring all of these interpretive principles into play. One of them would be context. So I would say, obviously, this is not a requirement for today. Even as later Jesus gives his disciples instructions that were different from this command. If you go to Luke 22, you don't have to go there now, but he says... Um, take extra money and take a sword with you. Number five. Let me give you a fifth rule before we practice a little bit with a case study in Acts 19. Number five. Illustrations are still helpful in teaching truth even if they don't command. So you say, okay, so what's really the point of poets in the New Testament even? What's the point of, of Paul going into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12 if we're, not to, if we're not to seek that? If that's not a king, if I'm not to strive to get into the third heaven, what's the big deal? And we would say, oh, we can learn all kinds of things from that. For example, in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul goes to the third heaven, one lesson would be that God's blessings are often followed by trials to keep us from becoming prideful. Right? Paul goes to the third heaven. The temptation is to be prideful. What immediately happens? He's struck with a thorn in the flesh. I gave several examples of 
uh, Elijah's miracles or uh, Dorcas coming back to life. I would like to focus on the fourth one because I just read this this morning in my devotions. I was going through Numbers and I came to Numbers 5. Do any of you remember that story in Numbers 5 where it talks about a woman who is suspected by her husband to have committed adultery? So he can tell, there's no witnesses, but Bob sees that something's not right with his wife Sally and he suspects her of adultery. What should happen? There's this elaborate ceremony where he takes her to the authorities. They take a cup of water and then they take dust from the tabernacle and they mix it in the water and then they stir it around and then she has to drink it. And when she drinks it, if nothing bad happens, then she's innocent. But if something does bad, bad happens, then she'll be, never be able to have children and she'll, her womb will shrivel up. I'm not making this up. This is actually in the Bible, Numbers 5. What do you do with that? Are, are we to do that today? If you came to Pastor Seth with this particular issue, would Seth, Pastor Seth say, no, just a moment, i got my cup here, I need some dust out there, throw it inside, swirl it around, is that what we do? Well, we would say, that is a poet. But this poet has some teeth to it that can help us. And I thought, what does this mean? And then, before I sought help, I just observed the buffalo. And I thought... And if you go through Numbers 5, which we don't have time, but it really is an amazing story, and you need to read it. As I went through it, I thought, man, there is no way this woman is going to get through this whole process if she's guilty without everyone knowing she's guilty. And I at least took from this particular story, it teaches, number one, the seriousness of infidelity. You get caught or even suspected of adultery, you have all of these steps, many of them public steps that you have to go to. Number two, the importance of thorough investigations of such claims. And third, the heavy price the conscience pays when exposed to rigorous and serious questioning. I thought, you know what, I think scripture knows Scripture's so wise into the psyche of the human mind. There's no way you're going to get through that without this group of people knowing this lady is either guilty or innocent. And by the way, by the way, if she was guilty, we know that the punishment was death anyway. So that explains some of why there was the uh, ramifications. I brought up that illustration just to say illustrations are helpful in teaching truth, even if they don't command. Even if it's a poet, like Numbers 5, that story, even though it's not commanding Lloyd to make his drink with dust inside of it, it still has teeth to teach wonderful truths. All right, let's go to our case study. And what I decided to do is go to one example in Acts 19. Uh, would, it, would it be a bad example of, a, of inferring from a poet there to say that we can use... Um, trial by things like that, like a trial, like they did in the old days, that they would say a trial by water, where they would throw you into the water, and if you sink, you were guilty, and if you floated, you were no. And that's a good question because it's easy to look at Numbers five as some kind of like mysticism, 
You know, like this is magic. It's not magic in Numbers 5. So I don't think that would be fair to do that, what you're asking about. This is not magic. Uh, and we can't go to Numbers 5 to prove that. All right, points of contact. Go to Acts 19, verse 12. What are points of contact, and what on earth does this have to do with kings and poets? We're just talking about kings and poets, and now we're talking about points of contact. But you all know what points of contact are. You might not have used that phrase, but you see them all the time because you live in South Africa, and you see and are inundated with the prosperity gospel. According to prosperity theology, points of contact are actions connecting faith with God. It's often a physical item that we need. It's a point of contact. It's something between the miracle and us. We need some kind of object. Some people have compared it to turning the key to start your car. You've got the engine, you've got the driver, and somewhere in between you've got that key to get it kick-started. And so it might be anointing oil, it might be uh, prayer cloths, it might be faith-filled letters. These are the point of contact. You say, what does this have to do? The reason is because people hold to a theology of points of contact because they read a poetic text. And they thought it was a kingly text. Let me give a few examples. Uh, Oral Roberts, I just had a man, he was very kind, he stepped by our church the other day, his name was Ambani, he lives near Toyndo, he's a venda, he's a pastor, I assume every time I speak to a pastor, 95% of them are going to be prosperity, he and his wife are supposedly pastors at a church, and uh, we had a great conversation, and somehow, uh, he was asking what our church taught, and I said something about prosperity teaching, and he said, wow, even as you speak, like, man, I feel, I feel some real, real conviction. I said, okay, why? He said, man, because, you know, our church, is, um, our church is a Kenneth Copeland church. Have you ever heard of him? I said, I have heard of him. We talked a little bit. And I said, you know, if, um, you know he's like the king of prosperity. So you, you really have to think carefully. And he, he was very teachable. He said, man, I need to learn. I said, that's great. Uh, that's great. We, we love people with that spirit. Rebuke a wise man and he'll, he'll love you. Where does that come from? Proverbs 9.8. And I said, that's what you're doing. So he's an Oral Roberts, Kenneth Copeland guy. Well, Kenneth Copeland came underneath Oral Roberts. And Oral Roberts was famous in that one time he mailed out plastic bags of holy water to various people who wanted to purchase these. And then on live TV, he used the magic water and he poured it over his wallet to show that it would make him rich. Or Crevlo Dollar once urged his congregation to, cu- to cure poverty by putting dollar bills hidden in their shoes. That would be points of contact. We need some kind of physical object between us. Kenneth Hagen did a similar thing. He often used spit as a point of contact. Listen to what is said here. Quote, he always spit on them, every single one of them. If there was something wrong with your head, he'd spit in his hand and rub it in your forehead. If you had a stomach trouble, he'd spit in his hand and rub it on your clothes and on your stomach. If you had something wrong with your knee, he'd spit in his hand and rub it on your knee, and all the people would get healed. 
John MacArthur spoke about another point of contact. He told the story about how he received a miracle prayer cloth they received in the mail. Quote, it said this. This was the message. Take this special miracle prayer cloth and put it under your pillow and sleep on it tonight. Or you may want to place it on your body or on a loved one. Use it as a release point whenever you hurt. First thing in the morning, send it back to me in the green envelope. Do not keep this prayer cloth. Return it to me. I will take it. Pray over it all night. Miracle power will flow like a river. God has something better for you, a special miracle to meet your needs. That would be another example of a point of contact. But this isn't only America. Listen to what African preacher David Ayadepo, who is the pastor of a mega church called Living Waters Faith Winners Chapel in Nigeria. And you've probably seen many Winners Chapels, right? Here in South Africa. That comes from Nigeria. He believes that handkerchiefs and anointing oil and pastor mantles are containers of spiritual power. This is what he says, quote, The anointing oil is not a chemical product. It is the Spirit of God mysteriously put in a bottle. Mysteriously designed to communicate the power of God bodily. It is the power of God in your hand, in the person of the Holy Spirit, to humiliate Satan. It is the power of God placed in a tangible form in the hand of man to make an open show of the devil. Now, I just gave five examples. We could give many. I gave five examples, and you say... Where did they get these? Did they just make this up? And the answer is, they didn't make it up. They actually went to the scripture. They'd be happy to take you to the scripture. And they may even go to the text we have open this evening. Acts 19, 11 through 12. And this is what it says. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. Verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, let me ask this. Is that a poet or a king? It's a poet. Why is it a poet? Why is it a poet and not a king? Right? Isn't it? Isn't it? Describing is not commanding anything. Right? Well, let me just give a little context. Paul's in, in Ephesus, and that's important. We'll see in a moment. He's in Ephesus midway through his third missionary journey. He's baptized some believers. They're confused believers. They haven't had the Holy Spirit yet. Relocated his Bible studies to a new position. He got kicked out, and so he goes to a new place. And the people use handkerchiefs. Now, if you look at the Greek words, it's, it was probably some kind of sweat cloth. Paul worked with his hands. Maybe he was doing his tent making work. It was some kind of probably a sweat cloth that he maybe tied around his head and then discarded it somewhere. And people are now coming to that sweat cloth or that handkerchief or that apron and they're, they're using it. They're taking it. It had touched Paul. It had touched Paul's skin and they were using it to heal and then exorcise demons. Should we imitate this? We have to know biblically how to answer this. I would say no. 
And here are five reasons, or six reasons. Six reasons that what happens here with the Apostle Paul is not what happens at Winner's Chapel in Nigeria. And it is not what happens with TB Joshua. And it is not what happens with Major One in prison or years ago in South Africa. Let me give you some differences between Paul and Winner's Chapel. Number one, the miracles were different. Uh, When you go to Winner's Chapel or Prosperity Churches, would you say miracles are a major part of their service or a minor part? Would you say it happens rarely at their services or often at their services? I would say that too. But this is not the case in Acts 19. Notice what it says in verse 11. Now God worked what kind of miracles? Extraordinary. My version says unusual. It was out of the ordinary. They were special. They were remarkable. They were rare. And so already we see that this is something that was not commonly happening. It was unusual. It was rare. It was not common. Contra Winner's Chapel. Number two. The preachers were different. That is, TB Joshua, Major One, didn't run the same way as the Apostle Paul. Paul and his companions were not seeking to be rich by selling amulets to fund their ministry. In fact, we might even be able to say Paul didn't even... It doesn't say that Paul was handing these things out. The text seems to imply that Paul just discarded them and they were picked up. Contrary to Major One, who was forcing these things upon people. You need to purchase this, buy this water, do this. Paul was probably not even part of the process. In fact, his circumstances in Ephesus, contrary to the most prosperity preachers today, were those of persecution. Now this is interesting. This is why this one right here, this one right here, cross-references, and this one, uh, I'm sorry, context number two, and then cross-references are really important to help us with this one. Because you're going to speak to a prosperity person and they like, they like doing things quick and fast. And they're going to say, look at the text and let's go. And when you want to slow down and say, hmm, all right, let's talk about this. Let's go to the context. Hey, yeah, what does the verse say? They want to be quick. Let's go to the context. And wait, where did this actually take place? It took place in Ephesus. Now this is interesting because... Luke does not record in this passage right here in Acts 19 everything that happened in Ephesus. But there are other parts of Scripture that do tell us what happened in Ephesus, and it is crucial to our interpretation. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15.32, Paul says he fought with beasts in Ephesus. On his missionary journeys, he faced affliction, 2 Corinthians 1.8. He suffered in every way, persecution struck down. Hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. In other words, the handkerchiefs from Paul's body were laced with his own blood. That's the significant point. They were not gold-laced like we see at Winter's Chapel. Number three, the circumstances. 
were different. Why are you giving me this silly passage in Acts 19, Mr. Prosperity Man? You think Acts 19, verses 11 and 12 is going to intimidate me? You think this is a check mark on your side? Like all prosperity passages, it's actually one of the greatest passages pointing against their theology. The circumstances were different. This is certainly a transitional story. Uh, if we went, went back to the context, we can see differences early on in the early verses where here are some, perhaps in, on your interpretation, this might have been unbelievers who have yet to receive the Holy Spirit, even though we know that the way things normally work is believers at the moment of salvation are given the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. The tools were different. They were miracles and not magic. Number five, the results were different. Uh, this is the only place we find the word exorcist in the Bible, verse 13. We have no New Testament examples of casting out demons by anyone except Christ and his apostles. So it's going to be hard for someone to say, this is what we need to do. In fact, the Bible gives this as the solution for demonic activity. Fight sin. Repent of your sin. Obey God's word. Put on the armor of God. Include the helmet of salvation. Use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we're talking about kings and poets, right? So if we're talking about kings and poets, let's look at what kings and poets say in scripture. Christ never commands Christians to cast out demons. Scripture orders Christians to have peace with one another, Mark 9. To love one another, John 13. To welcome one another, Romans 15. These are all kings. Instruct one another, Romans 15. Greet one another, Romans 16. Wait for one another. Comfort one another. Serve one another. Bear with one another. Be kind to one another. Submit to one another. Encourage one another. Do good to one another. Stir up one another. Confess to one another. Show hospitality to one another and fellowship with one another. But never are believers told to cast out demons from one another. And that's significant because remember one of our rules if we go to a poet, but we say, but there are kings over here that tell us to do this to one another. We say, okay, then let's take this poet as a king. If we find poets talking about comforting one another, but it doesn't command us, we say, that's okay. We can take this as a king because there are other kings that tell us to do that very thing. And of course, the purpose, finally, number six, the purpose was different. The aim of miracles is always to point to Christ. And it is a point to God's word. It is not to point to man. It's not to point to money. It's not to point to riches. It's not to point to power. In order to confirm these apostolic credentials. Remember the whole Bible was not there at the time. It was necessary for Paul to perform miracles. Well here's the big idea. And that is the goal of these extraordinary miracles in Acts 19 was not imitation but it was confirmation of Paul's ministry now what do we do we just looked at an example Acts 19 and we said here's a case where people came to this passage people in this very town came to this very passage and they said here is a king commanding us to do a b and c we would say 
Now it's a poet. It's describing something. And because there's no other kings elsewhere, we are not commanded to obey this particular passage of scripture. Of course, we can learn from it, 